listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 223. This week, as pandemic mask and distancing restrictions are lifting around the country, we look into the effect on workers. Are front-facing service workers at higher risk? But first, the news. I'm back in the UK for a little while, and last week I dropped in on the launch, virtually of course, for a new report from Fair Work and the Oxford Internet Institute, rating working conditions in the gig economy. That report coincided with the news that Uber had decided to recognize the union GMB, which is one of several unions organizing Uber drivers. You have heard from some of the others on this show before. The deal, importantly, does not mean that Uber will bargain with the workers over whatever they want. It has said bargaining over wages is off the table, and the company continues to insist that the recent UK Supreme Court ruling that drivers were workers and entitled to the minimum wage only applies to the time that drivers actually have a fare rather than the times they are active on the app. Uber is one of many of the companies evaluated by the Fair Work Report, so I called up Matt Cole, one of the researchers on this report, to talk about gig working conditions. So yeah, can you give us a brief overview of the new report that um, you worked on that just came out? Yeah, so this is the first research that we've done into the platform economy in the UK. And uh, Fair Work essentially is an international project uh, in which we've co-developed a set of principles with uh, people and organizations uh, to understand how platforms impact working conditions. Basically, we have a, a scoring mechanism. The methodology we use uh, includes a number of worker interviews, a lot of depth research, and uh, interviews with managers. Sometimes we get data from the platform through NDAs. Sometimes they, they don't cooperate. But... Based on that data, we then rate platforms according to uh, fair pay, fair conditions, fair contracts, fair management, and fair representation. For example, fair pay, the first point means the platform has to evidence that workers cannot earn below the minimum wage after costs. So, you know, for example, if, 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 if uh, an Uber driver averaged minimum wage, uh, it wouldn't give them that point because they could earn below it. And if you add in all the costs of, you know, petrol or uh, insurance, they would definitely earn below that. You found that basically none of these platforms actually meet all of these expectations. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as, as we know, the platform economy isn't known for fairness, right? Part of the motivation of this project is to try to shame platforms into, uh, you know, being better to the workers, but also like empower workers and work with trade unions to try to get them to adopt better principles. Even sometimes like some of the platforms are quite um, receptive uh, to us. And like that's another part of the impact of the project is like using that um, power of the academy to try to, you know, convince these people to change their policies and you know some of some some platforms like the best platform was pedal me they're a smaller platform uh, um and they were rated eight out of ten but they're our highest score we we had three platforms amazon flex bolt and ola that's got zero <laughs> uh, 
yeah. much like you know the UK and Eurovision. I'm not sure if uh, American <laughs> listeners are are, are aware of that program, but most of the platforms like got between one and two points. So Stewart, which is a courier company, Helpline, which provides cleaning services, both got one point. Uber and Uber Eats both got two points. TaskRabbit got two points. And then Deliveroo and Just Eat scored a bit higher um, because Just Eat just they they they're shifting to uh, away from this gig gig model that uses bogus self employment contracts and like low road employment. Um, and so we wanted to sort of one of the part one of the the things about the projects is we also want to like highlight where companies are moving in the right direction. Um, and Just Eat has uh, you know put almost all the workers on uh, in, in London, Birmingham and, and Liverpool on worker contracts. They provide lots of all the sort of uh, like e-bikes and health and, and safety equipment and stuff and lots of support. And this is a good thing. And we wanted to sort of highlight that they're also the market. They're also the market leader. Um, so they, uh, you know, demonstrate that you can be profitable in, in doing this as well. Yeah. Um, and just for our American listeners, the worker contract versus an employee contract, um, especially because this comes up with the Uber situation as well. Right. So it's in, in the U.S., you, you basically have you either uh, have an employment contract or uh, you're an independent contractor. Um, but in the U.K., things are a little bit more complicated. Um, I mean, they're, they're sort of reflecting a bit like the changes that happened in California with prop 22, where you have this sort of in between status, uh, which doesn't afford you as many rights. Although in the UK, um, our sort of in between status is better than the one in California. So, yeah. example. Um, so, so essentially you have a three tiered system where self-employment means they treat everyone as their own independent business. So you're driving, you're riding around for Deliveroo on your bike, and you're uh, you're an independent entity. Um, that's and, and that means you have no none of the protections that you would have under uh, a worker classification or an employment classific employee classification. Um, where ju Just Eat is is sort of classifying their um, their workers in this sort of middle category. And that means that, um, you, you you have, uh, certain employment rights that are really, really important, right? So, so you get the national minimum wage, uh, you get protection against unlawful deductions from wages. Um, so like if you, if you were, you know, working, uh, overtime or you're working extra hours and, um, you, it didn't show up in your pay slip, you'd be able to file a grievance. Um, you get a statutory minimum and paid holiday, minimum length rest breaks. Uh, it's also subject to the European working time directive, which means you, you can't be compelled to work more than 40 hours on average per week. Um, and, you know, protection against off unlawful discrimination, whistleblowing, uh, and so on. So, um, it's, it's significant, but it, it compared to employees, it, they miss it. Workers, uh, miss, miss out on sort of Minimum notice periods if their employment's ending, uh, um, like if an employer is dismissing them, uh, the right to request flexible working time, time off for emergencies, and statutory redundancy pay, um, and like maternity pay and, and, and things like that. So 
So there, there, there's a lot of benefits there, but um, just because you are classified as a worker doesn't mean uh, the company will necessarily follow the letter of the law, uh, which can you know lead us to talking about Uber, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly right. So, so Uber um, in the Supreme Court ruling, which we talked about, Michelle talked about on the show last time, um, was required to classify it the drivers as workers, right? But it it refuses, as I understand it, it refuses to pay for the time that people are active on the app and insists that it's only going that it only has to calculate minimum wage based on when they're actively like carrying a passenger, right? Yeah. That's that's what they've stated um, themselves, uh, and from from what I've, I mean, I've also asked them like if they could provide a copy of the, the their contract, and they seem to think that um, they don't need to provide a contract. Uh, the the sort of the Supreme Court ruling just classifies them as workers by default, which isn't actually true because uh, you're in if you're a worker or an employee, you're also entitled to what's called a written statement of particulars, which is your contract and the terms and conditions, right? So, um, yeah, they, I mean, Uber just doesn't seem to think that um, they need to necessarily follow the letter of the law. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you focused on in this report was this question of the unpaid working time, right? Where where people are active on the app and, and ready to work, but not in the moment of a delivery or a fare in the cab and that this question that this is sort of what it seems like these companies want to eliminate, right. Is having to pay for any time that you're not accumulating yeah. profits. Yeah. I mean, this is part of a, like, a wider, a, a longer term strategy uh, as a sort of highlight in the report, like, um, and other people have said this as well. Like a lot of these companies, you know, they have their origins in the U S um, and the U.S. has a long history from uh, FedEx to uh, coal mining companies in, in the early. So FedEx in the, in the 80s and 90s, there was a dispute over um, like working time and self-employment uh, in, in the early uh, 20th century. Like in 1914, there's a, there's a case about a coal company saying, you know, they, they don't employ workers. They just, uh, you know, liaise between you know, independent contractors and, and the coal itself. Right. And this is, this is a way of, uh, essentially avoiding any, any of the obligations that you should have as an employer to your workers. And part of that also like means that when you, when you add a sort of technological element where you can track all the time that your workers are engaged in productive activity that means you can cut out all the unproductive activity right Um, even though that unproductive activity is necessary for like to actually turn a profit like for example having lots of drivers waiting around for rides is necessary for the company to make money because if if a uh you know, a consumer can't has to wait for 15 minutes, 20 minutes for a cab every time, they're not going to want to use the service. So actually, like being available should be part of working time, you are legally uh, speaking, like, if you're a worker or an employee, um, under the national minimum wage uh, regulations, wait time, travel time between jobs, training time, uh, and like several other like more detailed categories 
all count as as working time um, under under time time work. And then there's another sort of more complicated um, classification of pay Isn't called it always piecework, and, and that requires you know averaging the amount of uh, pieces you produce in a certain period of time, but that can't fall below the national minimum wage. And as we know, um, like drivers or delivery riders often make below the minimum wage. So, and, and also part of the law says you actually have to disclose how you calculate that to workers, which is one of the key things that these platform companies have resisted because this is their like proprietary algorithm. This is right, their yeah. right? And they reserve the right to fiddle with it at any moment. Yeah, they change it constantly. Um, sometimes from like, you know, the, the algorithm will change from one delivery to the next, like uh, delivery, you know, delivery or Uber or any of these like uh, workers could reject, like get a job for a certain amount of money, reject it, and then uh, have it come back for a different amount of money, the same job. So it's, it's highly variable. And this is, and there's, there's no sort of inf- there's no regulation that's enforceable or it's not being enforced where it could be uh, on these companies because they're so incredibly powerful. Like Uber essentially rewrote uh, the laws of California through their lobbying power to suit them, right? It's extremely frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so speaking of Uber and to, to sort of wrap this up, like the news also came out last week that um, Uber would accept or grant depending on how you want to frame that, a recognition agreement to the GMB union. Um, but even in doing that, they're still saying that they are not going to bargain over some of the things people usually bargain over, like wages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so to be fair to, to GMB, uh, like I think obviously getting any any uh, engagement um by like with Uber as a union is is a victory, and you know the, I'm sure the way they see it is okay. We've got them at the table here. Uber's not actually even abiding by the laws anyway because there's been rulings that have said you have to do this, you have to do this, and Uber's just like sure, and then doesn't do it right. Um, so perhaps with their logic, they're saying you know okay, we've got them at the table now. Now uh, if we can just recruit and use the resources of quite a large union, then they'll be able to actually leverage the power of collective organization strikes and, or other sorts of ways of, you know, putting pressure on Uber to actually, you know, uh, force the kinds of changes that workers want. And one of those might be like bringing uh, bargaining over pay onto the table uh, but you know, this is this is me sort of giving the most sort of generous uh, reading the to to the situation. I mean, obviously, like from a, a more cynical point of view, um, you know, sometimes unions compete with each other. There's been examples of um, more right wing unions in Europe uh, cutting deals, uh, company unions like in New York, like kind of uh, getting in the getting in a sort of negotiating position, but then not really challenging Uber in the ways that they really should be challenged. So, I mean, I, I think it's a bit too early to tell. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's worrying um, because, I mean, I, I would be suspicious of Uber, right? As anyone would. <laughs> yes. they, they've, they've actively opposed unionization for years on the grounds that 
their business model was incompatible with traditional employment and that union and what unions advocate. Um, you know, they'll, they, Uber says it will consult in some areas, collectively bargain others. So that just means, you know, what we'll consult. I mean, it's pretty non-committal and pretty sus to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it always seems like Uber's goal with all of these sort of negotiations and bargaining and the New York bill and all of this stuff is to get at least some unions to sign off on the idea that workers are independent contractors. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I were like uh, uh, put my like capitalist hat on, I would say like any kind of like affiliation with any uh union like quote unquote or or not uh to be a great pr strategy and uh like to sort of fair wash the company and then you can sort of take you know say ah oh, to legislators look we're we're engaging with workers blah 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 right it, it's i mean that it's it's really obvious i guess but unless you unless you know the sort of intricate differences between unions and, and laws and you study this sort of stuff, like, yeah. which I imagine quite a lot of politicians aren't, you know, examining this in as much forensic detail as like you or I, right. you know, like they can use that to sort of get around the demands of workers and, and continue what they're doing. That was Matt Cole. He is a postdoctoral researcher at the Fair Work Foundation and the Oxford Internet Institute. The issue of discrimination in labor is typically framed as an issue of race, gender, or religion in the U.S., but a number of high-profile caste discrimination cases have surfaced in recent years, highlighting how the caste system colors how inequality in labor struggles play out in the South Asian diaspora. In New Jersey, a group of construction workers was recently alleged to have been victims of a sophisticated transnational labor trafficking scheme run by an elite Hindu sect that has been building elaborate temples around the world. According to a lawsuit recently filed on behalf of scores of workers recruited from India, the operation was basically a years-long forced labor operation under the guise of a religious mission. Cynically, the lawsuit argues, the sect, known as Bochisanwashi Akshar Purushottam Swaminiyaran Sanstha, or BAPS, brought the workers in on special visas meant for religious missionaries, under the pretext that they were volunteers. BAPS also claimed that the workers were needed for temple construction because they were artisans who were skilled and the particular form of stone masonry required for the extravagant temples. The workers were largely Dalits, a lower caste that is often subjected to extreme discrimination, abuse, and oppression in India. After being forced to sign documents in English to be cleared to work in the U.S., the workers arrived in New Jersey on the promise of good wages and a decent work schedule. Instead, the New York Times reports, quote, lawyers for the men said that they did manual labor on the site, working nearly 13 hours a day, lifting large stones, operating cranes and other heavy machinery, building roads and storm sewers, digging ditches and shoveling snow, all for the equivalent of about $450 per month. They were paid $50 in cash with the rest deposited in accounts in India, the complaint said, unquote. Workers allege that when they arrived in rural Robbinsville near Princeton, they were forbidden from leaving the enclosed area surrounding the work site, toiling all day hidden from public view. They were also allegedly subjected to day-to-day caste discrimination. Workers began to complain about their working conditions and to organize in the wake of the untimely death of a co-worker from an apparent illness. Many were then deported, according to the workers, when they spoke out against their employers. 
BAPS has denied these claims, not surprisingly, claiming that the workers were recruited specifically to do skilled work on the temple's special structures. The nature of the work is not exactly an ancient craft, though. I mean, they were performing dangerous manual labor on an unregulated construction site and earning about a dollar an hour, according to the lawsuit. Following the co-worker's death, the workers began partnering with a local lawyer, who is herself of a Dalit background, in preparing to bring labor and immigration claims. The workers' campaign has been backed by international unions, including International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Crafts Workers and its Administrative District Council of New Jersey, along with Pathar Gadhai Mazdor Suraksha Sang Union, which represents stone carvers in the state of Rajasthan, India. The bigger issue here is the intersection of culture, migration, labor, and human rights. The use of a religious and cultural rationale for bringing these workers to the U.S. signifies how easy it is to game the visa system to allow maximum exploitation. Global Labor Justice International Labor Rights Forum said in a statement that, quote, artisanal religious temple stone carving has been commodified in a way that is exposing workers to sub-minimum wage working conditions and dangerous risk of silicosis as the carving is warehoused in India. The lawsuit is still pending, but this could be a major intervention in a religious enterprise that spans the globe and has tried to brand and promulgate the Hindu nationalist ideology of the Modi administration around the world. With the support of the labor movement in India, the U.S. and other countries, these temple stone workers just might end up dismantling a massive system of labor exploitation. The big sports news this week is that tennis star Naomi Osaka pulled out of the French Open after being fined for skipping a press conference. Naturally, because Osaka is a young and occasionally outspoken woman of color, she took part in last summer's strike wave of black athletes after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, saying, quote, before I am an athlete, I am a black woman. If I can get a conversation started in a majority white sport, I consider that a step in the right direction. So, of course, the press lost their damn minds about it. But others have noted that, once again, Osaka's withdrawal is a job action. She is withdrawing her labor as one of the best and therefore most billable athletes on the court from conditions she finds intolerable. And she's not the first to challenge the strange obsession with the post-game press conference. Several friends and readers of mine, including good friend of the show, Kenzo Shibata, noted that in Work Won't Love You Back, I wrote about NFL running back Marshawn Lynch's protest of the press conference a few years ago, when he turned up and simply answered every question with, I'm just here so I don't get fined. Yes, listeners, I bought the t-shirt that he subsequently sold with the slogan on it. As friend of the show, Mariam Kaba noted on Twitter, this strange idea that pro athletes owe us attendance at a press conference because they have accumulated some social capital skips over the people who have much more power and yet no obligation to regularly speak to the press. She noted, quote, are y'all clamoring for Warren Buffett to be fined by his company for not talking to the press when he doesn't feel like it? As a journalist who covers, you know, actual capital, bosses and politicians, I have to report that I have often heard no or more often simply gotten radio silence when I make an interview request for of the more powerful much more often than I have gotten access. And even the time-honored press conference is usually a stylized performance where slick operators like New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo ask reporters for presumed softball questions. The powerful get to pick and choose who's even in the room. The idea that even when done in the White House, the press conference somehow produces important information is often laughable. And I say this as a professional political journalist. When it comes to athletes, and particularly women athletes and black athletes, and Osaka is both... 
the press conference is little more than an attempt to stoke some drama. As Jonathan Liu wrote in The Guardian, the press conference is, quote, really a lowest common denominator transaction, a cynical and often predatory game in which the object is to mine as much content from the subject as possible. Gossip, good. Anger, good. Feuds, good. Tears, good. Personal tragedy, good. Meanwhile, the young athlete, often still caught up in the emotions of victory or defeat, is expected to answer the most intimate questions in the least intimate setting in front of an array of strangers and backed by a piece of sponsored cardboard, end quote. In women's tennis, where the subjects are so often young and pretty, and heaven help them, of course, if the reporters don't find them pretty, Lou notes the press conference, quote, takes place not just in a largely white male space, but a white male with free food space. That sense of voracious engorged entitlement often manifests itself in exceptionally creepy ways. Question, I noticed you tweeted a picture. Are you prepared that if you go on a long run, you may be held up as a sex symbol given you're very good looking? Jeannie Bouchard, Wimbledon 2013. Question, you're a pinup now, especially in England. Is that good? Do you enjoy that? A 17-year-old Maria Sharapova, Wimbledon 2004, end quote. Osaka, citing her mental health in a year where no doubt she's faced racist backlash and who knows what personal stresses on top of the game and all of the other stresses that all of us have been through in this year of pandemic hell, refused to participate in the emotional labor of letting a bunch of reporters ask her personal questions, was punished, and withdrew her labor entirely. And then the real capper on this story is that the president of the French Tennis Federation gave a statement to reporters on Osaka's withdrawal and then left, refusing to take questions. Presumably, he'll be fined next? As the Las Vegas Strip springs back to life after lying dormant for much of the pandemic, Nevada legislators have just passed a law that gives many of the state's laid-off workers priority access to their old jobs when their employers start rehiring. Basically, they get the right of first refusal or first dibs for the job that they previously worked or a similar position. According to a fact sheet by the Culinary Union Local 226, which represents casino workers across Las Vegas, the right-to-return bill applies to workers laid off after March 12, 2020, for economic reasons due to the pandemic. And it guarantees that employers, which have 30 or more employees, must offer laid-off employees job openings for the same or similar positions as the employee worked previously. That means workers who receive job offers have 24 hours to accept or decline, and they must be available to work within five days of receiving an offer. And workers may turn down up to three job offers with at least three weeks between each, if the job offer is for the same or similar position and has similar hours to the worker's previous job. Notices for recall must be made available in English, Spanish, and other languages that employees speak, and laid-off employees can enforce their rights through a complaint to the labor commissioner or by suing in court. The Culinary Union says that, quote, hundreds of thousands of union and non-union hospitality, airport, casino, travel, and stadium workers, including third-party operators at hotels and casinos, such as retail shops, restaurant, bars, and parking facilities, are protected, unquote. I spoke to Gioconda Arguello Klein, Secretary-Treasurer for the Culinary Union, about the labor coalition that pushed the bill through the legislature and what it means for the recovery in Las Vegas. We have 350,000 people in the hospitality industry. We represent 60,000 in the culinary who were, but everybody was affecting, you know, with this situation with the pandemic. In the first two months, we had 98% of the members, uh, you know, was laid off. After people go back to work, 
half of the union members, they are still in layoff. And we worked so hard with another union. So, you know, we had the Tinster Union, the Operator Engineers, the National Nurses United support this and this collision. We have the Bartenders Union, the United Workers. We all together to push really hard how we're going to go through this uh, pandemic, but be sure these people, they can go back to their jobs one day. One of the things with the culinary, we have uh, in some, some of the companies, uh, we have members who they have recalled right for two years already because we negotiate a part, but uh, we have some employers, they don't agree to do that recall right for two years. And we've been fighting for union members and no union members uh, to protect their job. It's nobody's fault, you know, this pandemic. Uh, but uh, at the end, uh, we had to figure out, you know, how this family who went through suffering so much during the pandemic uh, have the layoff uh, and with the fear to getting sick and everything, uh, get their, their job back. And we've been pushing really hard to have a deal, a deal 3A6, right to return and we feel very good about this because this is going to protect uh, 350,000 workers uh, you know and these workers uh, they're going to be in the Clark County and in Washoe County they're going to be at the hospitality industry at the airport and the casino stadium workers uh, where we'll you know we know when the completed the economy back oh, that job that job going to be for them and uh, this is a great thing, and we really want to applaud the majority leader, Nicole Canizaro, and the speaker, uh, Jason Fierson, uh, because, uh, and the legislators, you know, because they they vote, they pass that, and now they, uh, we, they, are, they are in the governor's hands, you know, in the desk, the signing, and we need to have this law. Members, they've been suffering so much during this pandemic. You know, people thinking when you lay off or you, you, or, you know, you got your unemployment money, that's not enough when you are a single mom and you have three kids. People want to back to their jobs. You know, that's what they want. What is it like for the workers going back to work now? Well, right now they're working, uh, you know, and uh, we're waiting for getting more workers uh, inside the casinos uh, to uh, to back to work. Uh, you know, people, they have the rights to protect themselves. You know, we know Las Vegas is getting busy. Uh, it's getting more busy, but the only way Las Vegas is going to be in great shape is when all the me- well, when people go back to work. That's when Las Vegas is going to be a, a, in a great shape. You know, we was a very successful city before the pandemic. But if you still have half of the union upside, that's the meaning, you know, the community got affected because the people who are in the off, they uh, who are waiting for the job back, that people, they live in this community. And whatever they make and whatever they make as for, for money, they return back to the community. They buy homes, they buy cars, they buy food, they buy clothes. You know, it's moving the, the estate too. I think Nevada recently lifted um, the mask mandate for, um, you know, after the CDC changed its guidelines. What has that been like for um, the workers at the casinos? Um, has it been 
a smooth transition? Are there workers who are still concerned? Um, how have employers been treating it? Well, you know, uh, we've been working really hard uh, for uh, everybody understanding it's so important to have the vaccine uh, and get the vaccine, get the vaccination. Uh, it's a lot of uh, misinformation upside, you know, and uh, we've been having town halls, meetings. Uh, we've been having doctors uh, who give uh, all information to the members. And here, the community has been working hard to give it the, the right information about the vaccine. The employers, too, everybody been working uh, to, uh, to have the majority of the people uh, getting the vaccine. And right now, uh, the numbers of COVID here in, in the state is down. And we feel like, uh, you know, and, and, and now June, from June 1st, is no restriction. But the, the members always have the right to wear their mask if they need to, if they want to wear their mask. That was Giocanda Arbello Klein, Secretary Treasurer for Culinary Union Local 226. This past Memorial Day weekend seemed to mark a turning point in our so-called recovery as we move towards vaccinating a majority of the nation's adults. Families are starting to travel again, people are recreating and dining out again, and millions are returning to their workplaces and rejoining the labor force. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention encouraged this supposed return to normalcy with a new guidance on mask wearing, basically telling people it is okay if you're vaccinated to go maskless both indoors and outdoors in many circumstances. So how are you feeling about going back to work? If you're one of the country's many frontline workers, maybe you never even stopped working during the pandemic. Do you feel safe working alongside people without masks when you don't know if they've been vaccinated or not? Or maybe you're a part of the large swath of the population that has not yet been able to be vaccinated so far. If you're a bit nervous, you're not the only one. Unions and labor advocates have slammed the new CDC guidelines for failing to take into account occupational safety issues, and they've called on the Biden administration to issue a workplace safety standard specifically for COVID-19. It's unclear if that standard will ever materialize. I spoke to a few folks about what workers are facing as the pandemic-related restrictions ease across the country and employers pressure workers to return to business as usual. First, we'll hear from two members of the Workers' Justice Project, a worker center based here in New York City. Here's Mercedes Aguilar, a house cleaner. My day-to-day work is going to work from home to home, um, where I'm in contact with many families who are in contact with other people as well. And as house cleaners, we are consistently at risk of getting sick of COVID and also getting our own family sick. So we are at risk because some of the people we work with are not using masks. And on top of that, they don't give us masks and they expect us to buy out of our wages our own um, equipment like masks and gloves. 
This is not good because we, we spend money on this essential equipment. Sometimes we, we spend $18 for a box of masks and another $18 for a box of gloves. And on top of that, sometimes they don't even tell us that there is a family who's sick, maybe with COVID, and this puts us as a greater risk. And we take that risk because we need to work. For me, especially, it's concerning, and I'm very nervous that the government wants to lift the restriction of the use of masks because I feel that we are at a greater risk um, of getting sick. We feel that this is not the time to re remove that restriction. As workers, we need to have more safety and feel we also get protected, especially because not everybody has gotten vaccinated. I have my appointment for this Saturday uh, for my vaccination, and I have heard other other of my coworkers that has already gotten vaccinated, and we're doing it because we know we are at a greater risk. But also because we are hearing from our own employers um, that we work with that they they're not getting vaccinated. Um, and this is why we also need this restriction not to be lifted because workers like us are the ones who are at a greater risk doing this work. And Gustavo Ache, a construction worker and delivery worker, talks about what he deals with every day at his two frontline jobs. I wake up early in the morning and wait um, for um, my employers to pick me up so we can start my first morning job in the construction site. At the construction site, I don't get in, I don't get in contact with that many people. But when I start my food delivery job, that's when I start in contact with more people. And I have to um, take more safety measure precautions. At a personal level, I am I am the, among the first people who got vaccinated. But there is many sites um, that there is still a need for the use of the mask because we don't know who actually is and is vaccinated. I know that there is many other workers that think the same, that whether you are or aren't vaccinated, because we get in contact with so many people, we have to take the necessary safety measures until we can trust that it is safe not to use them. Volvamos a, a tener más confianza en todo. 
What I have observed is that many people um, are still uh, taking the safety precautions. Many buildings have the same restriction rules. We hope that little by little, as more people get vaccinated, all this um, ends in the, as part of our past. I, I feel that it's also about people's consciousness and awareness. And the city has to promote as well this awareness about protecting. You know, we don't know who's vaccinated or not, and we hope that there's more people that can get vaccinated so we can stop this. And finally, here's Debbie Berkowitz. She is Worker Health and Safety Program Director with the National Employment Law Project who previously served as a senior policy advisor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration under Obama. So it's been a few weeks since the CDC issued its new guidance. As a workplace safety advocate, how does that guidance apply to what workers are dealing with every day on the job, if at all? Oh, actually, it had a tremendous impact for all workers on the job. And in fact, I think in the end, it had a real negative impact. First of all, it created really chaos in the workplace because most employers um, are following state rules right now because the federal government has not issued any rules yet, though President Biden did promise that on his second day in the office. And so a lot of the states are rolling back mass mandates and other protections, and employers are following that. And so you have workers who are in workplaces where it's either, you know, they have contact with the public um, or they are in settings like congregate settings where there are a lot of individuals sort of close together, like food processing, um, warehousing and uh, other industries. And I think workers are terrified because in a lot of the the working age population, you know, not everybody's vaccinated. In fact, just a little more than half of the population over 18 is vaccinated. Um, and uh, so there's a real mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated workers. And unless employers continue to uh, enforce um, masking and social distancing, unvaccinated workers are are terrified, and rightly so, because they are at risk of getting COVID and um, of getting seriously ill. Um, the CDC guidance um, doesn't seem to distinguish between sort of general public places, or, you know, it distinguishes maybe between indoors and outdoors, but it doesn't, it doesn't draw distinctions between a place where you work, right? And maybe, you know, a place where you go to order a sandwich. Is that right? That is totally true. And that was a huge mistake on the part of CDC. And it's a mistake that is sort of unforgivable because they knew that the Department of Labor and OSHA was considering writing requirements for all employers to protect workers and was gearing up to actually issue uh, such a standard. They also know from their own data that um, the workplace has been the source of a lot of the spread of the disease, both in the workplace and out into the community. Um, And by not distinguishing 
workplaces, especially workplaces where workers um, are in congregate settings with other individuals that may be unvaccinated, they uh, really sort of made a mess. They did exempt healthcare and prisons um, and homeless shelters, but that's it. What about supermarkets? And what about um, food processing, meat packing, and other you know, essential industries where the workers really bore the brunt um, of, you know, the risks of this pandemic out there every day while the rest of us white collar folks were able to sort of work from home and isolate. And, um, you know, I think this was a real kick in the face to working people. And it's really upsetting. And, it, you know, you really sort of, you know, wonder about, you know, commitment here of this administration to sort of, you know, protecting the workers that they said that they would. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the actual, um, you know, how how states are responding to this and how employers are responding, um, you, I mean, here in New York, we're hearing about um, now schools are not going to require teachers to, uh, or, or they're sort of lifting the mask mandate on schools in general, both students and teachers. And, um, and restaurants as well. And I was just thinking about um, sort of the nature of different workplaces and how they ha- like face sort of different hazards, I guess, because uh, I was thinking that um, seems like the, you know, the, 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 the level of risk is kind of twofold here because there are some workers who are, for instance, service workers who are dealing with the public all the time. And so then you're dealing with like, you know, a whole bunch of people who may or may not be vaccinated throughout the day. Um, But then there are also people like folks who work in meatpacking plants where they're just, you know, with the same people all day in a very tightly closed packed space. Um, Should OSHA be issuing guidelines for, you know, each of those or like how, how would it, how, what would a responsible kind of set of guidelines for workplaces look like? So I'm going to distinguish here between guidelines and a standard. A standard is a requirement. A guideline is you can follow it or you can't. OSHA has guidelines right now, um, but what is needed is a standard. That's a requirement that says that if there are vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals mixing together in the workplace, then employers still have to um, and it's indoors, you know, until everybody is vaccinated. And, you know, there's always going to be some that won't be vaccinated because of religious reasons or because of health reasons. But until, you know, you've got all the people vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask and you still have to do social distancing indoors because you've got workplaces where you have just 30, 40 percent of workers vaccinated and you need to protect the unvaccinated right now. And that's really why you know, OSHA should have issued the standard back in March when the president directed them to do. And, and now it's just being slow walked and delayed. So I, I don't actually see it uh, coming out at all, uh, to be truthful. Um, and therefore, I think it's important um, that the states, you know, hold firm about making sure unvaccinated workers are protected in the workplace. Otherwise, you're going to see cases rising and deaths rising because unvaccinated workers are not protected the way vaccinated workers are. If you have everybody vaccinated, that means you can all eat lunch together. You can go in the workplace um, and you don't need to wear a mask. But if you have 30, 40, 
you know, 20, even 20% of workers unvaccinated, then people need to protect one another. And we need to have masks and you need to have social distancing. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that um, it's a, it's a sort of a travesty that OSHA hasn't been able to issue uh, that standard. And I also want to point out that I believe it's, you know, that the, that the people that are facing the, the highest risk here are black and Latinx workers who um, make up um, the majority of, of a lot of the essential uh, industries where you've got just 30, 40, 50% vaccinated or where you're dealing with the public um, who may or may not be vaccinated. And, you know, we want to make sure that all workers are protected when they go back to work. Seems like it's difficult uh, for an employer to even know what percentage of their workforce is vaccinated. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, it seems like it's it would kind of be risky to lift it at all, as, as long as there might be a chance that there are unvaccinated workers. Well, and I think in a lot of industries, you like meatpacking, where you talked about all the workers are in like one uh, building, you have like a you know, you can have 100% turnover in those uh, factories so that they're hiring and firing 20 new workers every week and the same in other industries. So you've got constantly new workers coming in. And, you know, I do think, um, you know, EEOC did put out new guidelines that employers can ask uh, workers if they're vaccinated or not, because that's the only way, in a way, that they can make sure they're implementing proper mitigation measures to protect the unvaccinated but it's, you know, you have to hold that all private. And there may be a reason for some people who are not vaccinated. And then we have to all, you know, have mitigation measures to protect those people who may have compromised, you know, uh, medical conditions that they can't get the vaccine or religious reasons. Would it be possible or do you think it would be a good idea for OSHA to allow employers to or for OSHA to encourage employers to require that workers be vaccinated? OSHA can't do that. Okay. OSHA can't require vaccines or any of that. So that's not what OSHA does. The EEOC did put out guidelines. They're the ones that um, set those requirements. And they said private sector employers can require workers to be vaccinated. Um, but I think mo most important is that... Um, you know, and I can see I lo I'm looking at California, which has an OSHA emergency standard to protect all workers that the federal government was supposed to issue, but never did. And they're now looking at changing it and they'll vote on it tomorrow to say the employers need to figure out who's vaccinated and who's not. And if everybody's vaccinated, then they can start backing away from some of the more protective measures. But if people are not vaccinated, vaccinated and they're working indoors, then you've got to look at masking, stepped up ventilation, um, and, uh, and social distancing as just part of what you workers go through um, and, uh, and are there to protect them. This seems like it's especially tricky for workers who are dealing with the public all the time because, um, you know, they generally have... <laughs> Um, unless unless you're requiring proof of vaccination at the door, um, it's pretty difficult to 
to gauge who's vaccinated and who's not if they're just customers milling about like at a grocery store, say, and I've heard some workers feeling, expressing frustration that, you know, they're sort of being put in the position of being perhaps the mask police or something like that. If, you know, um, if they're, for instance, you know, a store does require, keeps the mask mandate and people don't want to wear it. So I, I guess how does, um, in that situation, um, uh, could could OSHA do anything to protect workers? So I think it's just sort of sad that um, so much of this burden has fallen on our essential workers for their to protect their own safety when it's really the employer's responsibility to provide a safe workplace. And I know that supermarket. I just came from the supermarket, and you know people are really scared and and very nervous about customers coming in sort of dropping their masks because they don't know whether they've been vaccinated or not. And not all the workers in the supermarket have been vaccinated yet. So everybody's concerned about, well, what about my coworker who hasn't been able to schedule the vaccine yet? So, you know, I think that uh, workers should not be the mask police. Um, that should be up to management and uh, management has to figure that out. And I also think that, um, you know, we're putting by not setting requirements for employers, you know, you know, the next thing you know, they're going to say that workers don't have to wear masks. Yeah. So if, if can an employer actually require that all employees unmask themselves or, you know, not wear masks to work? Does the employer, does the employee have any kind of prerogative in terms of, you know, their own protection? Well, that would be a really irresponsible and um, and completely reckless um, mandate that, you know, workers um, are not allowed to wear a mask. I think that workers should be able to wear a mask if they want to. And, uh, Though, you know, at, yeah. at the beginning of the so, pandemic, there, there was like, I think some employers oh, yeah. did encourage were, their workers, right. know, people not to wear masks. So, And people got fired because companies wouldn't uh, approve of them wearing their mask. That is very true. So, uh, yeah, I worry about that, which is, you know, the situation the CDC guidance created by not actually, um, also saying, but in the workplace, things are different. And in the workplace, you need to do things differently than out in the public. So, you know, I'm still hoping that uh, CDC and OSHA do something to protect all those workers out there who are dealing with the public and who are in food processing who or farm workers who are working so close together or living so close together, um, you know, because I think we owe it to everybody who's working outside of their home in this pandemic to make sure that they're kept safe until everybody is vaccinated or we reach sort of a, a very high level um, uh, where we know people will be protected. And we're not there yet. You mentioned earlier that you are having doubts now that any kind of OSHA standard will actually be issued. Um, do you think that the CDC's latest um you know, new guidelines indicates that the Biden administration in general is just ready to kind of let go of a lot of these regulations and sort of, uh, you know, let, I guess, you know, let, let employers loose in some ways and just, you know, kind of try to get back to normal. I am very concerned and deeply disappointed in what happened 
in this administration because I think they came out very clear on day two that workers needed to be protected. And I know that OSHA started writing a standard. They actually had a draft of the standard and now it's just being slow walked. So, uh, and I'm not sure why that is at all. Um, And because of that, a lot of workers are just sort of terrified in the workplace of, of what is happening. And, and, you know, I just want to make it clear that, um, that it's still, you know, spreading and worker people are still dying from COVID. Yeah. I think we hit a, a death rate of like 400 deaths daily. And like people thought that was like a milestone. Like there'd been like so much progress. Right. And I was like, right. Wait. Because it got so bad. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We had 3000 a day. Um, I mean, a lot of employers do it right. A lot of the unionized employers where the workers have banded together have demanded, um, you know, that they can wear masks and that customer and that the employers, it's still in my grocery store. You still have to wear a mask. It says all customers should wear, you know, we're asking all customers to wear a mask and that could still be a rule. It's just like, you know, in a lot of grocery stores, you can't go in barefoot, you can't go in topless. So, you know, you, you can require that. And I'm hoping it's in the employer's interest, it's in the community's interest, and it's in the worker's interest that everybody still wear a mask and be socially distant until we know that, um, you know, most everybody's vaccinated. Um, it also seems like, you know, given that such a large chunk of the country and, and the workforce is so far not fully vaccinated, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that, um that workers of color will sort of bear the brunt of this. And um, I was just thinking, you know, here in New York and in other parts of the country as well, um, that there have been serious barriers to vaccination among, you know, many workers who maybe can't take time off from work to go get a vaccine. And and so it just seems, um, you know, the, the lack of action from OSHA seems particularly galling in light of the fact that workers are, having trouble getting the vaccines that they want. (laughs) I think that's a a completely accurate statement. And I think CDC um, completely overlooked the situation of a lot of low-wage workers, many who don't have cars, and even who live in rural areas and don't have cars because they take other kinds of transportation to work, and they work 10-hour days, six days a week, or they're uh, working, uh, they don't know their schedule from week to week, of trying to schedule the vaccine. Many of them have no health insurance. And so, you know, they have to find a place that will, um, you know, where they're, they're giving it free. And a lot of people don't know that it's, it's free. Um, so there are a lot of barriers just built into the system from everybody to vaccinated. I have to say that the Biden administration has done an incredible job trying to get the vaccine to people. And I think a lot of the CARES money, um, the, the new um, law that uh, has been, you know, was passed earlier, um, giving money to states and localities, a lot of this is to try to get the vaccine to these communities. Um, but I, I know some fast work food workers here in D.C. that haven't been able to schedule it yet because uh, one of them works seven days a week and he just doesn't know how to do it. And so we're going to, you know, because a lot of the free vaccine sites go from nine to five and he's working. So it's not that they don't want to get the vaccine. They do. It's just we have to give people more time. It's not that much longer, (laughs) but we still need to protect them so they don't get sick. Yeah. Um, 
you were very critical of the Trump administration, of course, um, in terms of how they, how it, how it managed OSHA and, um, you know, the, the attrition that you saw among OSHA personnel as well. It seems like, you know, some of that weakening of OSHA made it particularly perhaps uh, ill-equipped to deal with something like a global pandemic. Um, do you think the situation that OSHA is in right now is kind of a result of, you know, many years of erosion for uh, at the agency previously? Well, the agency was completely and intentionally hollowed out by the Trump administration. They made it so difficult to replace people that retire. And in every workplace, you have people that leave or retire. I mean, they put so many hurdles in that it was almost impossible to fill vacancies. And once that happens, you know, the staffing dropped. I think for inspectors or, in, you know, they're called compliance officers, the lowest level really in the history since the agency really was up and running. I think that OSHA had the talent and had the staff and they worked really hard and I'm sure they developed a really wonderful, uh, you know, standard that may never see the light of day. However, when it comes to enforcement, I think OSHA's really hollowed out. And, um, you know, had they actually passed a standard, how much enforcement of that standard they could have done, it probably um, pretty minimal. I mean, they actually did put out some directive that said if they do issue a standard, you know, th- that in terms of enforcement, that they would only look in workplaces where there were outbreaks and where there were lots of people. So they weren't going to go into small bodegas and mom and pop shops. They were going to look at, you know, large meatpacking warehouses, you know, supermarkets where there was spread of, of the disease. And, um, and I'm hoping, um, you know, that, and I, and I, I believe it, that there were that this administration, the Biden administration is really committing to, building back OSHA and building it back better, actually increasing the staff and the training, but that's going to take a couple of years. So they aren't going to the small workplace. They aren't going to do spot checks. They just don't have the resources to do that. There's, you know, it would take OSHA 160 years to get into every workplace just once under their jurisdiction. That's how little staff they have. And they've done a couple. I saw they, you know, the state of Massachusetts referred them to uh, a workplace that was uh, banning masks, and they did find uh, that workplace. I know they're in an inspection in a meatpacking plant. Um, a complaint was filed by the local union in Oklahoma. What I don't understand is why OSHA is taking so long to not, to um, finish that inspection and to either cite the employer and have them put in um, safe measures or, um, you know, or sort of move on because workers need protection. But there's a problem with COVID without a standard. OSHA does have the ability to cite an employer, but it requires a lot more evidence, a lot more legal work, and a lot more staff. And that's why OSHA can only do right now a few inspections, but at least they are for the first time, you know, going out and actually physically entering the workplace. Under the Trump administration, they did almost none of that. Almost none. They just did these virtual inspections, which were like by phone or on the computer, which are not an inspection at all. And not what it, it, they just um, you know made this stuff up. Or they got a complaint and they just closed it with a letter to the employer. I don't think they're doing that now. I think if they get a complaint and it's uh, a formal complaint and... Uh, 
you know, there's a hazard, they will go out and do an inspection. That's what I've been seeing. But then again, they haven't been doing that much because they have such few staff. Yeah. And of course, it seems like if they're only going to places that have already had an outbreak, things are probably a little, it's a little too late probably to really protect that many people. But um. well, well, that's the issue with not having a standard. The standard would allow OSHA to go in sort of and, and do a preemptive strike. You're not complying with the standard. You haven't had an outbreak, but you haven't complied with the standard. Um, in the absence of an outbreak or the absence of people who are sick, it's very hard for OSHA to do anything at this point. And even, I mean, the, doesn't the investigation process take maybe months when OSHA walks into the workplace, they have six months to issue okay. a citation or close the inspection. Okay. However, with COVID, which is, I believe, a grave and emergency hazard, they should really try to um, issue citations if there are violations sooner than wait. Then, you know, we all tend to leave everything until the last minute, right? That's just who we are. We're human, right? So we wait, but it would be great if OSHA didn't wait the full six months and was able to issue citations sooner. Yeah, um, certainly a lot, a lot can happen with COVID if you have an outbreak at your workplace right. in the course of six months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, can you just talk about what the states have been doing? You mentioned California. Like, what is the, um, if California has issued a better standard, like what, what does that look like? Sure. You know, in the absence during the Trump administration of the federal government doing anything really to protect workers, um, over a half dozen states actually implemented requirements, which was really great for lots of different workplaces. Um, Virginia actually issued, they run their own OSHA, as does California, and they issued their own emergency temporary standards since the federal government failed to do that. And uh, California already had a standard to protect healthcare workers from COVID. What they didn't have is a standard to protect all other workers from airborne infectious diseases and such as COVID. And they passed that back in December, and that's been in place for six months. And I believe it's really, um, and they've done a lot of inspections under that. And I believe it's one of the reasons why you saw cases dramatically decline in that state. And Virginia has had an emergency temporary standard since um, last summer. Uh, I forget. I think it's in August they put that in place and they just made it a permanent standard to protect workers against COVID. So some states really took the lead. Other states did sort of modified versions of that. You know, Washington state um, issued emergency protections for farm workers and and congregate housing and some other establishments. The same with Oregon, the same with Michigan, the same, you know, they order, they implemented sort of slivers of protections on for different um, industries that required masking, required social distancing, you know, things that if an employer wasn't doing it, the worker could say, listen, I know this is required. And then, you know, call up the government agency and say, you know, this isn't happening in my workplace and people are endangered. The problem is if it's in a state where there isn't a state OSHA, it's very hard to have an enforcement mechanism. I mean, New Jersey, for example, the governor there really put in very good executive orders um, and had to create out of whole cloth, a whole enforcement mechanism, because usually federal OSHA is in New Jersey, like it is in New York. And, um, 
and you don't have a state OSHA like Virginia does or California does. So, you know, it's um, been a little bit of a patchwork <laughs> of this, but, you know, California, Virginia are good models for the feds to follow. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like the those rules are anything uh, particularly like, you know, difficult. To, like they're not terribly obscure <laughs> rules. I mean, they're just sort of, they seem to be just, um, you know, very more deliberately applying the best science out there and the CDC, um, you know, advice on what to do about masking and social distancing in most cases, right? It totally, in fact, both standards created nothing new. CDC guidance really uh, starting in like end of March, beginning of April has been the same. And, uh, and that's what these standards reflect. You know, it's masking, social distancing, ventilation, notification of coworkers if workers are sick, you know, um, keeping exposed workers and um, sick workers out of the workplace. You know, it's really all been the same uh, protective measures. It's, it's not rocket science, as you say. And it's not like industry closed down in California or Virginia. It's not like, oh, my God, OSHA puts a standard in and the world ends. You know, every time in, my, in the 40 years I've been doing as an advocate on worker safety, um, uh, and, you know, first I worked for unions um, and then the federal government and now um, the National Employment Law Project, Every time OSHA issues a standard, employers say, oh, my God, you know, this is going to have horrible consequences and shut down this industry or that industry. And it's just not true. The evidence is clear that OSHA standards don't kill jobs. They prevent jobs from killing workers and they save lives and they save employers money. That OSHA standards that that protecting workers in the end, safety pays. Yeah. Um have employers been um, like lobbying OSHA or uh, pressuring OSHA in any way to uh, back off or go softer on the regulations um, amid the pandemic? Uh, does, does yeah, I don't know, the, the Chamber of Commerce or something like that, do they, do they often resist um, such regulatory actions? Well, the Chamber of Commerce often leads the opposition to OSHA standards. And just recently, the Chamber of Commerce and some Republicans came out and said, we don't need an OSHA emergency standard. So, yes, I think they probably behind closed doors uh, have lobbied hard the Biden administration and um, and the White House. And maybe that's why the standard was delayed, which is really sad. Um, and uh, and maybe that's why workers weren't protected. Will we ever have a clear picture of how many um, work-related COVID infections there have been? And also, um, along with that, um, as an individual worker, if you're infected, um, if you believe you've been infected through work, like what recourse do you have, um, you know, given that OSHA is probably not going to back you up? Um, you know, do you have any legal recourse? Like what, what is the burden of proof? And, and is anything the government is doing right now going to uh, help workers um, get justice if they have been infected through work? Well, I'm going to answer there. These are sort of two separate questions, but both um, really have difficult answers. The first one is that the CDC did not require that when you get tested that um, you write down, you know, 
if you were working over the last 14 days. And so a lot of states went back and if you tested positive would ask to find out so they would know if there are outbreaks in certain workplaces. But the data is very spotty. Um, and, and except if you're a healthcare worker, where CDC started in, I think, May, requiring if you're a healthcare worker or a nursing home worker, you had to um, check that box. Um, but um, many uh, people didn't fill it in. And there, so there's very spotty data. There's some state data. A lot of states aren't reporting the data they have. So there is no real database of where people were or if they worked when they got sick. Um, and on people's death certificates that died of COVID, it will say if, you know, what their occupation was and if they were working. And, um, you know, we really have to put pressure on the Biden administration because we know that those death certificates, you know, can be analyzed to at least come up with a picture of, of you know, it doesn't directly say they got it at work, but at least you can come up with a picture of when people died, where were they working, you know, before they died. And I think um, that will, uh, you know, lead to some good information. I mean, I, I do think that part of the way the Trump administration, um, you know, fought um, doing anything to protect the American people was just by denying the, any ability to gather any data to make the case. And so like the meatpacking industry, for example, they have data and how many cases in their own plants, but they're not releasing that data. This, some of the states like Texas, Kansas, um, and uh, Georgia and, uh, you know, North Dakota and other, and Iowa, big meatpacking states have data and they're not releasing it. So, you know, uh, there's a real suppression of like how many cases really are there? You know, there's one nonprofit that's gaining the data just by combing through uh, newspaper stories and asking about 10 states that actually have some data uh, to give it to them. And then, you know, if a worker gets COVID and uh, gets seriously ill so that they lose a lot of work time, you know, in, in more than two weeks and they... Um, you know, it sort of impairs them. And, you know, filing a workers' comp claim in most states is going to be really, really hard for them to access workers' comp benefits. Some states have passed rules that if you were working uh, outside the home and you got COVID, then um, there is a presumption that you got it at work because, you know, that's really, um, and that could be helpful to workers, but most states don't have that presumption, except for maybe firefighters or hospital workers. And, you know, workers' comp as a whole is a state-run system. Every state is different. And it's really, even before COVID, it's a totally failed system um, to compensate workers with any occupational disease because companies come right in and say, oh, well, though they're exposed to this chemical, you know, they didn't get sick at work. They got sick at home. And most people with COVID can get sick in the middle of the night, right? Oh, they didn't get it at work. Um, so we, we don't have to worry about it. Even uh, JBS, which is in the news right now, um, they said that none of the cases in their factories were work-related, even though so many workers died in individual factories and hundreds and hundreds of workers were infected. They're saying it's all, you know, has nothing to do with work. So, um 
it's really hard for workers that get sick at work. And so I actually think, um, you know, but these workers should be compensated. If they got COVID, somebody, a taxpayer or the state or the city should be providing, you know, paid leave and medical care to get people back to work. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty good argument for universal health care right now, <laughs> given. Yeah. <laughs> But that's, yeah, (laughs) we don't even have a a workplace safety standard. So um, going for universal health care is probably not in the cards at this moment. But um, I was just asking about the liability thing, because I remember last year in Congress, I think the Republicans kept on wanting to push like like lawsuit lawsuit immunity for employers, like when, when they're trying to come out with, um, you know, relief for, for workers, um, you know, sort of legislative relief. And it seemed like, so (laughs) it seemed so wildly inappropriate to be trying to insert, you know, like a lawsuit shield for employers. It was even more than a lawsuit shield. It would have prevented like Cal OSHA and Virginia OSHA from enforcing their standards. It really was to just completely let employers off the hook and say, you don't have to do anything to protect workers and if they get sick. And, um, you know, it is really hard, almost impossible in most states of the union for a worker to sue a company because they got sick or died on the job. It's almost impossible because workers' comp laws in almost every state prevent those lawsuits, even if the employer... um, uh, you know, was acting in sort of a negligent way, you have to show intentional tort, which is a very high bar. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Debbie Berkowitz of the National Employment Law Project. We will put links to everything she talked about and more at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. Since I am indeed on a sports labor kick today, I chose a piece by Nathan Kalman Lamb, Derek Silva, and Joanna Mellis at The Guardian titled, There's Never Been a Better Time for U.S. College Athletes to Unionize. It has, of course, long been true that college sports are a uniquely screwed up form of labor exploitation, something that I wrote about once again in great detail in the sports chapter of Work Won't Love You Back. But is that actually going to change? Kalman, Lamb, Silva, and Mellis think maybe. They write, quote, At times, it can feel like it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of exploitation, abuse, and harm in the world of U.S. college sports. This is, after all, an athletic system that produces billions of dollars of revenue for universities and the NCAA, and yet denies the workers who generate it a basic wage, the ability to engage in compensatory promotional work, and the equivalent educational experience enjoyed by their non-sporting peers, even as it tolerates physical, sexual, and emotional abuse and the subjection of its participants to extreme physical harm. And we haven't even mentioned the plantation dynamics. End quote. But unionization, they write, might be a solution to what they note was deemed status coercion by sociologist Erin Hatton in her book, Coerced, which all of you listeners should read. We are big Erin Hatton fans here on Belabored. 
Status coercion is the use of one's status as not really a worker in order to, you guessed it, wring out more work for less compensation. In the case of college athletes, it's about convincing them to play harder, risk their bodies for the hope of maybe someday landing in the majors, and if not that, then, you know, pure love of the game, while treating them as, of course, desperately in need of guidance and hand-holding. Kalman Lamb, Silva, and Mellis quote former Northwestern quarterback Kane Coulter saying, It's like a paternalistic relationship. It's a lot of yes sirs and listening to their orders. Coaches have all the control. Coulter, of course, was one of the leaders of the union drive at Northwestern University a few years ago, which we covered extensively on this podcast when it happened around 2014. And I've noted more recently that the NLRB Regional Council, who found that those Northwestern players should be eligible to unionize, his decision was, of course, overturned by the Trump era board. But Peter Sung Orr, that regional council, was installed by Joe Biden as the acting general counsel at the NLRB. And now there is legislation backing the athletes' right to organize in Congress. Kalman Lamb, Silva, and Mellis explain, quote, Enter the College Athlete Right to Organize Act, a bill introduced on Thursday by U.S. Senators Chris Murphy and Bernie Sanders, and in the House of Representatives by Jamal Bowman of New York, Andy Levin of Michigan, and Lori Trahan of Massachusetts, that would provide collective bargaining rights for college athletes. The act is designed to assert and assist college athletes' right to collectively bargain by amending the National Labor Relations Act to define any college athlete in any sport as an employee if they receive any direct compensation, including grant and aid or any other form of financial assistance provided by the institution. The act also amends the NLRA to define public and private colleges as employers within the context of college sports, allowing athletes to collectively bargain at any college, regardless of state laws that restrict their labor rights, and facilitates the creation of bargaining units for college athletes by directing the NLRB to consider colleges within an athletic conference, such as each of Power Five conferences, although the bill does not only include revenue-generating sports as part of a bargaining unit with which athletes can negotiate. Importantly, the act would also assert the NLRB's jurisdiction over all higher education institutions within the context of college sports and on all collective bargaining and representation matters, including labor disputes. This would give campus athletic workers the ability to petition the NLRB to handle any issues that arise in the process of collective bargaining. The act would also prohibit any unilateral or bilateral agreements, such as scholarship agreements, which waive the right of athletes to collective bargaining while ensuring the tax and financial aid status of athletes' scholarships and other benefits does not change due to their employment status. End quote. This would have a huge impact, as many of the athletes they spoke with noted. Those athletes spoke of coaches who crossed lines, pressure to perform, insufficient health care and safety precautions, sexual assault, abuse, and of course, the fact that the entire edifice of college sports rests on racist inequality. Kalman Lamb, Silva, and Mellis write, quote, It is impossible to accurately assess the exploitative dynamics of college sports without ultimately coming to see it as an issue of racial justice, particularly in the revenue-generating sports and the Power Five conferences, wherein Black athletes are disproportionately providing the labor that generates revenue, yet are simultaneously underrepresented within the student body at large. The only meaningful counterweight available is unionization, the empowerment of athletes to defend their own interests as a collective. Indeed. My pick for ARG 
is by Paul Prescott in Jacobin. It's called 80 Years Ago Today, Disney Animation Workers Went on Strike. It's the story of the animation artist strike of 1941. that came toward the end of the New Deal era, off of a pretty good streak for the animation industry. It had dramatically expanded and modernized, and Disney was the pinnacle of the burgeoning animated feature film industry. During the gravy days of animated films, Prescott writes, quote, Disney artists were among the best paid and enjoyed a familial, if paternalistic, work environment. Disney made it a practice to share 20% of his profits with employees as bonuses. The studio even had an internal art school to train its own animators. Most Disney animators viewed themselves as a class above the rest in their field, unquote. This element of paternalism and intimacy is something you see a lot in fields in the creative and care industries. The use of the framework of a family, as opposed to a relationship between labor and capital, or between parties with antithetical class positions, can be very useful when trying to preempt your workers from organizing. In the case of Disney, it was a sudden turn in the company's fortunes that compelled workers to begin seeing themselves as actual workers that needed to act collectively. With the onset of World War II, there was a crash in the European market for films like Fantasia and Pinocchio, and working conditions deteriorated as Disney attempted to force its animators to bear the brunt of the commercial failures. Workers became more conscious of their position in the Disney hierarchy. Prescott writes, quote, the intimate familial environment was quickly gone from the studio in Burbank. Strict hierarchies were established, with most benefits only going to the highest paid and more established artists. Most new artists did routine dull tasks and received $20 per week, while the senior artists got to do more creative work and could make up to $250 per week. Workers were also forced to sign documents claiming that they only worked 40 hours a week when they in fact worked much more. And cartoonists wanted professional screen credits for their art, as they claimed Disney often took credit for their work. For the Disney employees, this industrial assembly line model for the animation process made them increasingly alienated and anxious about their careers. Professionalization and organization was the answer to the casual exploitation that had become the status quo at Disney. The group that would eventually become known as the Screen Cartoonist Guild began meeting secretly at the Hollywood Hotel to strategize on how to change their industry. This was all happening at a time when there were already established unions for many professionals in Hollywood, including the Screenwriters Guild, which was founded two decades earlier, and the American Federation of Musicians, which represented many studio musicians as well as performing artists. On May 29th, Disney workers went on strike to the protest the firing of one of the lead organizers and a prominent animator, Art Babbitt along with 23 other animators. Only about half of the workforce actually walked out. The strike punched above its weight in terms of its public impact, thanks to the creative protests. They displayed colorful signs featuring popular animation characters at the picket line, and it was a rather charismatic display of labor power. These days, union organizing campaigns are often quite strategic about how they interface with the media and engage in protests, often leveraging public pressure to push the management to agree to recognize the union. The Disney strike set a template for this type of campaigning, deploying allies like Donald Duck and Goofy to champion the workers' cause. Prescott writes, quote, Outside the studio building, the picket lines assumed a carnivalesque character. Cartoonists poured their creative energy into making signs and anti-Disney puns. Sorrel recalled in the PM newspaper, quote, it was particularly picturesque because these artists insisted on depicting everything in their picket lines. It was their duty when off the picket line to make gags and signs. Disney's hostility intensified over the course of the strike. He branded them as communists, and he actually seemed to relish personally attacking the organizers. I guess this was before the days of outsourcing union busting to highly paid consultants. But the animators stood firm, and sister unions came out in solidarity. 
including the Society of Motion Picture Film Editors, who actually refused to process Disney films at major Hollywood labs. Prescott points out that, quote, cartoonists returned the solidarity to other unions, for example, making picket signs for the United Auto Workers North American Aviation Strike in Los Angeles. So after this groundswell of solidarity, the animators won a pretty good contract that really raised the bar for labor protections for cartoonists and also broke new ground for cultural worker organizing. The strike gave the workers a platform to present themselves not only as skilled artisans, but also a proletarianized labor force who felt both their working conditions and their craft was being degraded by Disney's hunger for profits. Prescott ends the story of the animator's strike at the peak of the union's story arc, but sadly the victory was short-lived. A few years later, as anti-communist hysteria seized Washington, Disney teamed up with other studios to break the Screen Cartoonist Guild, and cartoonists at several major studios then created a separate union affiliated under IATSE in the early 1950s. The Screen Cartoonist Guild continued as an independent union, but gradually faded away. The IATSE union, known as Local 839, remained active. Their membership declined massively in the 1980s when production was outsourced overseas. But with the rise of the animated feature film, the ranks based in North America have swelled to about 3,000 members. The globalization of animation and the spread of the production chain across multiple countries, there will probably never be a concentration of labor power like the one we saw in Hollywood in 1941. But we are seeing yet another upsurge of organizing in the creative fields. A number of unions have sprung up in digital media, at museums, at Silicon Valley tech giants, and at video game design firms. We don't know where the next strike will take place, but it will probably have resonance all over the world. And when it happens, it will be a testament to the legacy of the animators who, as working artists, wanted both their bread and their roses and put their artistic imagination to work on the picket line. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good as usual. If you'd like to see all of our archived episodes, go to descentmagazine.org. And we encourage you to go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash belabored if you'd like to support our journalism. For the past several years, we have been bringing you frontline reports on labor struggles in the U.S. and beyond. In order to keep doing this work, well, we need to get paid too. And we really appreciate all of our sustaining members who have contributed monthly to keep us going. You can also find exclusive content for our Patreon supporters at that Patreon page. You can also support Descent Magazine by going to descentmagazine.org and signing up for subscription. And you can contribute to our program in another way by sending us story ideas as well as comments and questions. If you're a frontline worker nervous about this new mask-free reality that the country may be embarking on, if you're a worker who's struggling to find time to get vaccinated, and if you're a worker who's been laid off during the pandemic, worried about not being able to return to your old job as your employer opens back up again, we want to hear from you. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or find us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. In solidarity, see you in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.